Well, we are going to pick up our conversation that we've been having all these last several weeks here about the process by which God forms in us the kind of strength and character and the Christ-likeness that is preparing us to live forever with him in heaven. That's really what this life is about. This whole life, whether it's 70 years or 100 years or whatever number of years God grants to us, ultimately is a probation period where God is working out in our lives the character and the quality. Can we turn those back on, please? Thank you. That'd be good. Just that, just that one bank. That's good. Um, just so people can write. That's good. Thank you. You guys want to write, right, a little bit? Thank you. He's working out in our lives the qualities that will enable us to actually fit into his world forever without the need for continual cleansing and forgiveness. Do you realize the goal that God has for us is to form in us the exact image of Christ, who never sinned, who never failed God. And so the process, this lengthy process, in the end, we'll see how worth it, all, worth it all was for us. While we're in the midst of it, however, while we're in the midst of training for virtually anything, sometimes we can lose sight just a little bit of what's going on and what God's purposes are. So I hope that you've been enjoying the handouts I've given to you, trying to give you the copies of some of the slides as I go through them relatively quickly, or be able to give you more scriptural references to be able to uh, go into. I want to just start today where we left off last week before we get into this week's topic. Last week we talked about how to overcome the enemy of our souls, how to be able to have a focus that helps us recognize what's going on in the world around us and to be able to stand strong in the midst of the storm of immorality, the storm of unchristian behavior, the storm that's surrounding us. We still are the light of the world. We still are the only place that God has established on this earth to be a beacon of light, to be a lighthouse in the bigger storm of life. How many of you like lighthouses? And my wife's got both hands up over there. We've got lighthouse pictures, lighthouse models. We've got them all over the place. But the fact is, we're that light. We're the beacon of hope. And have any of you ever been a sailor and needed a lighthouse for the real purpose, other than admiring them as architecturally beautiful or going up in them and seeing the technology? How many of you ever needed one? You actually have. You've been out in the ocean or out in the sea or out in a lake someplace and needed a lighthouse. I'm sure that was a very welcome sight when you have that sense of being in the fog or not knowing how to find land and actually seeing a light that guides you home. We, together as the sons and daughters of God, the light of this world, are that lighthouse in the world today. There isn't going to be another one. I say that often. It's not as if God's going to say, well, the church is going to do this, but then we'll find someone else to be the light of the world. No, we're it. And so our opportunity is week in and week out to shine brightly a light that leads people to Christ, leads people to safety, leads people to health and wholeness that God offers to us, both in this life and obviously with eternal life. But we mentioned last week, we have an enemy of our souls who would like to dim that light in us or darken it so much so that we're just a barely a flickering candle. And we go through the struggles, the difficulties, the seasons of life that seem to dim that light within us. We find it hard to even manage our own lives sometimes, don't we? We find it difficult for us to be able to feel like, why would anybody follow me? Why would anybody go the direction that I'm going? Because it's so hard for me and I don't even know what's going on. Of course, none of you have ever been confused at all, right? You don't know what I'm talking about at all, do you? Well, I think most of us do. And I think one of the areas, if we get a handle on it, one of the key things the enemy of our souls tries to get us into is this thing called confusion. 
Confusion can simply be defined as not knowing left from right, not knowing what's true any longer, being undermined in your basic belief structure about who God is or what's going on in your life or why it's happening. And it's when those earthquakes hit us, when the tsunamis of life hit us, is that we start to question even our own belief system. Is what I've always believed in actually still true? Is what I believed in really true now that I'm facing a situation that seems, on the surface, to conflict with what we believe? When we see tragedies, when we see horrible evils perpetrated, whether it's 9-11, which was broadcast and emblazoned upon all of our minds because of the television broadcast and the repeating of it, or it's a tragedy that just happened out east just a few weeks back here, we go back and say, what do we really believe about these things? How do we fit these kind of circumstances into our belief structure, into who we believe God to be? And we have to ask those hard questions. But it's at those very moments... It's those very moments when the enemy of our souls would come in to try and confuse us and say, well, did God really say this? Is his word really true? Is the truth that you've been basing your life on still the solid foundation? It's at those very moments that we combat that confusion with the clear truth of the word. And that's why it's so important that we know the word. And I love being in a group like this of people who know the word and love the word and realize it to be the solid foundation. As I said last week, our culture has abandoned the Bible and the word of God, thinking there's a better way to do things, right? Human wisdom, the uh, conventional wisdom, or political correctness, or whatever else it is that people are trying to hang on to, but they're all shifting sand. They're They're more than shifting sand. It's quicksand. It's offering the sense of hope and help, but there's nothing under it except a deep pit. So we have the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, if you're my disciples, you're, you're going to be the ones who continue, are continually in my word. And then you will know the truth. And that truth will set you free. There's a difference between having somebody tell you something's true, like that the sun is 93 million miles away. And how many of you ever really questioned that? <laughs> Nobody. Why? You took someone's word. Did you ever get a tape measure? And try to do it? Well, of course not. Or even something much closer, like the moon being 237,000 miles. That's even closer. But you just take someone's word for that. And, of course, they vary slightly through the, through the rotation of the earth around the sun and the moon around the earth. But that's roughly the numbers. And I've just learned that as a child, and I've always remembered that. I just, I just accept that. When we are presented with truth that conflicts or seems to confuse us, we have to have a reference point, an authority. And that's why continuing in the word, continuing to read, continuing to learn, continuing to grow the scriptural truths that God has given to us is so important because we have got more and more and more sources of misinformation, false teaching, false doctrine, and more false religions than have ever existed on this planet. And the ability for false teachers to promulgate their notions and spread them into the unbelieving minds of other people is so easy. Just put it up on the internet. Just get on television, and I won't mention any shows that these things are constantly being promulgated on, promoted on. There are nice-sounding lies being perpetrated and shared across the world through the media. And if we don't know the truth, we ourselves could get confused. But that's where we have to stand on the truth. Secondly, the enemy of our souls, by confusing us, wants to steal and destroy the life God wants for us. 
We have to hold firmly to what Jesus said in John chapter 10, just a little further than John chapter 8 when he said, continue in my word. He said, I've come that you, all of you, might have life and have it to its abundant fullness. A good life. Difficult things happen. Challenges happen. Sickness happens. Sad to say death and untimely death happens. Tragedies happen. But Jesus' word stands firm. His desire is that we'd have a full life while we're here. The enemy comes to steal that from us by conflicting. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that we might have life and have it abundantly. When we get confused, and if we get off that basis and let the enemy steal our joy from us in in life, then we can get into despair. Despair is worse than discouragement. It's a step, that's the first step down. The next step down is disillusionment, where we're questioning what we, what we think and believe, and that can lead us into depression, which is so rampant, sad to say, across the board for various reasons. Psychological, emotional issues can be part of that. Physiological can be part of that. Other physiological conditions can create that. But it's also just a posture of soul. If we don't watch out, we can slip down into a next step down, which is despair, which is hopelessness, where we're so confused, don't know what's going on, we've lost sight of the goal, we've lost sight of the truth, and we can get into despair, self-hatred, and ultimately, an enemy of ours, the soul's design, is to get us to harm ourselves. Either overtly or covertly is to harm ourselves. We have to be wiser and recognize his schemes. And if we get, I come back to this because if it gets to the place where we see ourselves sliding down this slope, where we're getting confused, our joy has been stolen, or we allowed it to be taken from us, and we're slipping into that despair where there's no joy in life, that Romans talks about us having joy in the Holy Spirit. It's at that point we've got to kind of get into the emergency room spiritually and emotionally and get some help, is to reach out and say, there's something missing here. I believe in Christ. I know the way, the truth, and the life is him, and I've been in church all my life, and I've been right reading, but there's something missing. That's when to ask for some help. And that can be through a pastor, a counselor, a friend, your spouse for that matter, whoever else it is, to say, what's what's going on? And get get the tank refilled, because that prevents us from slipping down into the, the latter parts of this and thinking the wrong kind of thoughts. The enemy came to kill steal and destroy but jesus said i've come that you might have life and have it abundantly heavy subject but a real subject it happens and we have to know how to combat it and the number one thing i want to hand you today as a tool back to the ephesians chapter 6 passage we talked about at great length last week is it's god's desire that when we feel pushed down is that we need to get back up stand firm in what we believe even against contrary seemingly contrary information, to raise up the shield of our faith and affirm. Why do we continually make the confession of faith on a Sunday morning or what we believe in? Because we need to hear ourselves saying it again. It should never become rote. We need to confess with our mouths what we believe, is to even speak the word of God out loud, to, to confess it in that way. The word of God is the sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6 tells us. It cuts through the lies. It defends us, and by pushing back the enemy's lies, it affirms us. You want to be around friends like you're around here who affirm the word of God, who speak it to you, who affirm you in your beliefs. You get around unbelieving and negative people who are in confusion and don't have a handle, they can pull us down. Yes, we're meant to be around everybody. But when you get to the place, like I said, where you're getting closer to that despair, where the tank is completely empty of joy, it's time to get some help. And God will help you. 
God will help you be raised back up. Can we avoid the difficulties? Well, if you've learned anything in life, you know that's not possible. If one premise we've been in this whole series of standing strong in the storms of life, the storms are going to come. None of us are exempt. You wish you'd get exemption from certain things. You get a homestead exemption. You can get an exemption from classes if you're going through college by taking tests. You can get exemptions on different things, on your taxes. How many of you still file taxes? Do you still believe in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really, well, I guess I believe in it, but I, yeah, you, you get exemptions, right? You get exemptions off of your taxes. In, this, in the seasons and plans of God's plans for our life, there are no exemptions that you can opt out of um, the suffering and the difficulties, but we can avoid the pitfalls and avoid the devil's traps and be wise to know that that's his scheme. Once you know what somebody's up to, once you know what your adversary is up to, it makes it much, much easier to step aside. And once you've been burned once, it wises you up, right? And you, you get wiser and you avoid it. I remember some years back, and I think of these images, there was, how many of you have been out in the Sonoran Desert? Arizona, California. Um, and you, you know, there's cactus out there, right? There's many different types of cacti. And one of them is called, a, kind of a misnomer, it's called a teddy bear choya. How many of you know what a teddy bear choya is? It's... It sounds like a fuzzy, warm thing. It's the most wicked cactus that I've ever learned of in my life. And um, it's so sharp, it'll go through the leather on your boot. Okay, they're so, and, and they're barbed, small barbs, so they go in, but they don't come out. Okay. And we were climbing uh, a mountain out there, this vulture peak, which we often climb. And we were warned by some who had gone up before us that there was some teddy bear choya on this one particular path. So our group of about 10 or 12 people um, some of us had been up there before, so we said, okay, we'll take your word for it. I don't want anything to do with the teddy bear choya. I mean, they're, they're bad, and those of you who have seen them. They also, if you bump them, the little balls that will jump off, and they'll stick to anything that they, a horse's leg, your leg. So a couple people from our group um, kind of were newer. They thought they knew better. They were going to go the shorter route. So they went up the path that we'd all been warned not to. Let's just say that as we were ascending the other route up the steep cliff, we started hearing cries for help off to the distance, to the, that other path. Unfortunately, one of that group had backed into one of these choyas and had one of these teddy bear choya things stuck on their rear end. Um, not something you want, because they don't come out easily, and there's really not a whole lot of medical help available on the side of a mountain like that. So they had a painful... When we have been burned, you learn to avoid those things. And you've all, and we could spend hours here with the collective wisdom here of how the pitfalls, tricks, and temptations of the enemy, we've recognized them now and we're learning to avoid them. It's not God's will that we would blithely suffer needlessly. That's the number one message I want for this beginning part is there's a form of suffering that's helpful, that strengthens, that builds us up, that makes us fit for heaven, and there's a kind of suffering in this world that's unnecessary. God ordains the first. The last is sometimes human foolishness. Or people that don't, just don't want to listen to God, just don't want to listen to his direction. So we're about recognizing the right kind. Now, to do this, I want to give you, today's topic is, and I'm going to have to change my slideshow. I'm sorry, I went back to last week. So this will just take a second. I have it right here. It's class five. Um, and if you've been following along on the outline, you know today's topic is single word, nevertheless. This is a word that's common in the English language, not often used. 
But it's one word I'm going to hand you today, and it's based on a book by Mark Rutland. I don't know if any of you bought the book. We had a few of them in the bookstore. Any of you buy the book, nevertheless? It's one of the little books. You can read it in about an hour or less. It's a biblical term, and you're going to see some context in which it's used. It's a word that can get you through so many life circumstances when you recognize the power in it. It's a simple little definition, and the way the author defines it for us, if you've not read it, is, nevertheless, is a word bridge connecting two ideas, the first of which has no power, even if it is factual, to lessen that greater truth of the second. It's kind of a mouthful, so I'm going to read it again, and we're going to talk about this. Nevertheless, is a word bridge connecting two ideas, the first of which has no power, even if it is factual, to lessen that greater truth of the second. Bring it down to something very specific. When life's realities, as you perceive them, are in your focus, and you were forgetting or not considering the promises of the Word of God or the foundation of the Word of God, we simply need to remember that the Word of God always trumps our perceptions of our life circumstances. Because guess what? We have the ability to have subjective opinions about things. You ever met anybody who has an opinion that's different than yours? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as many people as may be in this room, maybe 150 or so people, I could give you a topic and we could probably get 100 different opinions, subjective from our viewpoints of a particular subject. I could give you certain topics we'd probably divide it right down the middle on. We get, you know, about 75 and 75. It's based on opinion. Nevertheless, is a mindset that says these things all might be true in this context. Speaking of the things in this world, but over against the word of God, they have no power to change it. Give an example, just a real simple one. We still sin once in a while, don't we? Have you sinned? Anybody know sin lately? Yeah, probably just a few. Um, and what's the penalty for sin? Okay, the penalty for sin, the consequence of sin, the penalty that God ordained for it is death. And we could just dwell on that and think that's true. And that's even a biblical principle. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he paid the full penalty for all of our sins on the cross. So the nevertheless in that case is simply saying, okay, there's a truth here, but here is the greater truth that trumps the first one. The problem is if you don't make that, that, that leap correctly, we can say we still sin and we have to try really hard to get better. So we'll make ourselves be able to fit into heaven. There's whole religious systems in this world right now that are based upon the faulty premise that we can make ourselves good enough to get into heaven. Do you know that? Work hard. Work hard at it. Pray more. Suffer more. Do more of this. Do more of that. And then eventually God will accept you and, and allow you into heaven someday. The, the world is full of those pearly gates jokes, right? And it's always based on some condition or other that St. Peter, which is not a biblical notion whatsoever, that he's up there being the gatekeeper, but he's there for sure. That part's true. And there's all these notions, if you did this, if you did that, if you did this, then we'll let you into heaven. Well, all of that's based upon good works lead to salvation, right? It's all based upon human effort trying to get yourself from the sinful state into a righteous state. We simply need to replace all that with it. Nevertheless, I still sin. I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, through the death and resurrection of Christ, I am saved and I'm destined for heaven. 
We need to affirm that kind of stuff. We need to recognize. That's an example of where the word nevertheless comes into play. But here's some biblical examples that Mark Rutland gives us for our consideration today. I'll get my hand. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 45, and I'm going to skip down to that here in just a second, is Christ's nevertheless. And we'll jump down to that in just a second. I hand you this handout. A very, very crucial point in Jesus' life here. Speaking of Jesus just before the crucifixion. And I want you to get yourselves into this account just a little bit. We've seen it portrayed on the screen. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, uh, Mel Gibson's version of that, how many of you actually saw that movie? Intense. Historically quite accurate, apparently, and much more brutal than anything we've ever imagined. Former Hollywood renditions of all of this were cleaned up a lot to not realize what was facing Jesus and what he was about to go through. The passion might overstate a little of it. I've studied the history of all this, but not much. There's a lot of, lot of history behind what Jesus was facing when these words were, were, were uh, are recording for us in Scripture. Luke chapter 22 says, And he came out and went, and as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at that place, the Scripture says to us, He said to them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, this is the King James, obviously, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. What if Jesus in that moment? It's too hard for us to imagine because we could never imagine this. What if Jesus was not willing and was not submitted to the will of God. If he got to that point and just decided something other than what he decided here, what would have happened to the human race? We wouldn't be sitting in a church today. I believe the human race would have destroyed itself a long, long time ago. But Jesus, in the moment of his greatest suffering, the scriptures tell us he sweat great drops of blood, the stress that was on him, not just for the physical torment that stood before him, but the fact of what he was going to go through and being separated from the love of God for that moment where he had to bear the full wrath of God for the human race. Even he, in that moment, in a moment of crisis in prayer, says, if this is, <laughs> if this is your will, let it pass. Nevertheless, the greater truth, not my will, but thine be done. And God sent an angel to strengthen him to physically allow him to continue what he was doing. None of us, friends, are going to be asked to do what Jesus did. There's a notion in some circles that tells us that, well, you have to suffer a lot and that will help redeem you. You ever heard that? Redemptive suffering? Well, there's a sense of that, but not in the sense of redeeming your soul. Your suffering and the suffering we endure in this life cannot save you because Jesus already has. But he was willing to do what no one else could have done, and that was to lay his life down for all of us. In that moment, Jesus simply says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I want to talk about this a little bit. If you have been in a situation, as I have at times, when God's will seemed the much more difficult path, you knew it was his will, and yet you had some other choices. You ever been in that situation? Anybody want to share 
an instance where you knew God's will was going to be the harder path for you? Anybody have an example you'd like to share with us? Got microphones around the room here somewhere. Maybe not. Okay, I'll share one. <laughs> can you can you close that door, hon? Just close that. There's something beeping back there. It sounds like a. Is that? Oh, okay. All right, that's okay. We'll just. Nevertheless, we'll go on. Um, <laughs> that was yeah. There we go. When God is calling us to serve Him, when God is calling us to ask Him to do something, it will oftentimes conflict with our self-satisfying desire for comfort. Back in 1978, remember that far back? Long time ago. Um, not that far, really. I uh, was just really enjoying my life at the time, involved in uh, college classes I was in and a great deal of ministry, doing a bunch of Bible studies and a lot of different things at the time I was leading and had a great ministry and also was working. My life was just good, feeling productive. And, and then this need was presented to me by a group of my friends who were planning a mission trip uh, down to Bogota, Colombia. And they approached me saying, you know, we really need um, another guy to go on this trip. We had three Spanish-speaking girls and one other Spanish-speaking guy. And here's me, the uh, six-foot-two white guy that doesn't speak, speak, English, uh, speak Spanish very well. And so I was presented the need, and I said, you know, I'll pray about it. And then um, came back and said, no, I don't really think I want to do that. That's out of my comfort zone. I'm going to get thrown into a country, into a place where I don't know the language that well. I had book knowledge, but I didn't have speaking knowledge with a bunch of people that knew it well. Well, then the Lord brought me to both this passage and a couple of others. And I'll say, I wasn't immediately, oh, okay, God, I'll do what you want. I will say there are skid marks from my heels all the way to the airport. I said yes, against my will, against what I thought was right. Like, what, am I, what good am I going to do down there? What am I going to be able to do? I can't even speak the language. We were, it was a trip designed through our college program uh, to actually work with orphans on the street in Bogota, Colombia, to be able to reach out to them, help them, the, the gamines, the niños del calle, aquí, I speak Spanish now. I know my friend Rick, Rick, Rick over here speaks Spanish. So I was kind of kicking and screaming. It was God's will. I knew it was God's will. I could read the word. It was, you know, give to those that ask of you, all those different things. And I just followed the word of God. It didn't take but 36 hours after I adjusted to being at 9,000 feet because Bogota is way up there. We got to Bogota. And I, like I said, I was kind of kicking and screaming all the way there. Not overtly, I was still, oh yes, I'm doing God's will here, but I don't want to be doing this. So we get there, first day, and normally you go to a higher altitude, you're supposed to let yourself adjust to that from sea level or 600 feet where Chicago is to 8,500 where Bogota. So the first day, and then we got a chance to land on the plane, we go see this area where these kids live on the streets. And they invited us halfway up this Montserrat, which is this mountain that's above Bogota, so to about 9,000 feet up, a beautiful, lush green prairie like a field up there and it looked really beautiful then they said we're going to play soccer with the kids okay so there's dozens of these teenage and younger kids out there and there's me 20 something barely able to breathe walking and we played soccer for a couple of hours i just about passed out but um i had recovered long enough that within 36 hours i realized god you had something far better for me here it was his will and i couldn't see it I was resistant. I was not willing. I said, if it's your will, but I wasn't doing so in such a cooperative way. And yet that three months plus that I spent there were a powerful transformation. 
in my life. Not only to learn Spanish, not only to draw closer to God than I've ever been and had the call to ministry absolutely cemented and sealed in my heart, but I was changed by the experience. God knew better than I did. Think back to your parents making you do things, if you can remember, that you didn't want to do. Writing thank you notes. Did your parents ever make you do that? That's a good practice to get involved with. Um, it's, it's kind of law. We've lost that art in our world today of doing those things. Or going and apologizing to your sibling for something. All right, I'm going to get you later, but I'll say sorry now. You'd never do it that way, of course. God is a way in the process of causing us to grow is that his will will often be different than our will. And it's when we say, God, I don't know why you're asking me to do this. Nevertheless, I know you're smarter than me, wiser than me, and there's a good reason for this. Therefore, I will trust you, not my own perceptions, not my own assessment, not my own intuition even, but I'll trust your word. When we do that, we are transformed significantly. And that's a simple trust Jesus demonstrates here in Luke chapter 22. The second nevertheless that I handed out to you on the, the sheet here is the nevertheless of an unshakable foundation. I'll see if I can get to the next slide here. No matter what else goes on, Second Timothy, Paul tells us, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. God's word calls us to live our lives differently, to repent, turn away from sin. What is our culture telling us now? What's our culture telling us nowadays to do with sin or wickedness? Well, it starts out with anything goes, unless it's something so egregious that everybody agrees, well, that's, that's wrong. Just this thing's wrong over here. But pretty much lighten up, let everybody do what they want to do, and let's just back off. And unfortunately, that mindset has crept into Christianity and the church. And thus, immorality low moral ethics and other things have crept into, in some ways, the mindset of many. But the scriptures tell us God's solid foundation stands firm and he still calls people to repent. That's a, that's a word we don't like to use, isn't it? You like, to tell, you like to tell someone else to repent? Stop doing that. That's bothering me. Why do you keep doing that to me? The foundation of God's word isn't going to change for us, friends. Okay? It's just simply not. I shared an example of a lighthouse asking how many of you liked or had ever used a lighthouse, literally. There's an account some years back where a, a young petty officer on a, a ship in a fog was, uh, excuse me, was operating a lighthouse on the shore. I forget what shore it was, either east or west coast. And a ship was approaching and signaling to the lighthouse. You probably heard this story. And the captain of the ship signals to the, to the lighthouse in the distance, please, uh, alter your course and go to the opposite direction. Well, simply the, <laughs> the lighthouse operator signals back, uh, uh, you alter your course. Back and forth, they go back and forth, and finally the, the order comes from the captain of the ship. I order you, I demand you to alter your course, and the guy, well, I can't, I'm a lighthouse. You alter your course, you're going to run aground here. The bottom line here is God's word's not going to change for us. Not for this generation, not for us because we think we know better, not because we've grown so smart. His solid foundation stands firm. If you put your faith in Christ, if you put your faith in the word of God, he is never going to let you down. People let us down. 
Life's circumstances and sometimes the expectations we have of life, even of God, don't seem to line up. But one of the greatest things I do in my walk that reaffirms me is I say it over and over, God, you know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. That's an honest confession. Affirming over and over again, and I do this, nevertheless, God, you know what you're doing. So I came through a great season, a dark season of my soul many years ago, and I really didn't know. I thought I knew the word, and I had studied it and read it through many times, was teaching it, and went through a series of events many years ago that really I, I could not make sense of. It didn't seem to line up. And I remember praying and fasting and really seeking God out and trying to understand what was going on, and, and it just, nothing was lining up. Finally, God simply spoke to my spirit and said, Son, I did what I had to do. That's all he had to say, and I understood. You know what you're doing. You know the path you have me on. I don't have to know the details. I just simply have to trust. Larry? Strong, uh, the word wickedness is there. But unless it's extremely strong, my question is, could the word must in where they from the original also be translated should? Because whereas must sounds like it's a requirement, we frequently don't turn away from wickedness entirely. Mm -hmm. That's because we're not perfected yet. You're right. And I don't know. I don't have the uh, Greek text in front of me here. I'll have to look that up. Thanks for that kind of thing. But the fact is, there's a process that God is leading us away from sin and sinful ways, leading us away from the things that are, in fact, wicked, and at the same time, teaching us his ways. And that's the next thing I want to hand to you here today in this context is God knows what he's doing. His foundation is always true. You know the word, affirm it, and tell God often, you know what you're doing, and I don't. And be willing to accept the fact that not only does he want us to turn away from wickedness, sins, and things that we know are wrong, he's trying to do the other side is to incorporate and build into us divine characteristics. And when you see it that way, it becomes easy to turn away from wicked things. It becomes easier. Oh, what's your way? A prayer I often pray, God, is how would you have me respond to this circumstance? How would you have me reply or respond to this person how would you have and that opens the door for him to say the things that the scripture says to us love them forgive them show mercy to them this is the delicate balance i bring it up because so often we can come across judgmental implying that we have repented from everything else and others should do it back to larry's point here or must do it as if we're somehow perfected instead of adopting the, the divine quality of saying even though all of us have messed up god showed us mercy so the process and the storms of life are designed to us make us give up on sin give away give it away and to begin to adopt the divine qualities make no mistake about this god isn't finished with any of us yet some of you are real close to perfection and I'm sure if your spouse was here, they'd attest to that, right? My wife's getting very close to perfection. You know, she was almost perfect when I married her, and now she's Sam picking on her again. I'll, I'll go over and give her a little hug here. <laughs> so when she's right over here, it's so easy to do. Reality is, we all think we're a little bit closer to perfection than others do in our belief systems and our structures. This is the, the balance we have to come to is even though we are 100% certain about what God's word says, and we need to hold that foundation firm, 
to imply by our belief that we have attained to it all or that we are living it out in perfection is a quantum leap none of us should make. We maintain God's word is perfect, not us. His ways are perfect. We may be learning them, but the reason so often those that try to hold this righteous standard come off as judgmental is because we are being judgmental, as if we're different. We are different. We're on the path to heaven. We're in the process of transformation. We are growing. We're going the right direction. We're going the right direction but we have not attained to it. Paul himself says in Philippians, not that I've already attained this, but this one thing I do, I put the path behind and I press on towards the goal, all the while being very merciful to those who are still struggling. Because guess what? God, even as late as the last breath a person takes in this life, is willing to accept a repentant sinner. Do you know that? The criminal on the cross next to Christ in the last moments of his life, even, and if you read the whole of the Gospels, all four of them together to get the whole picture, early in the process of them being on the cross, the scripture says both of the criminals mocked Christ. But as that one criminal saw the responses of Jesus, he was converted. You realize what happened there? Two of them, they both railed at him as the Pharisees and those on the ground were mocking him and saying, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Both the criminals mocked him. Then the story goes a little bit further. This is why it's helpful to have a chronological Bible that lays them all next to each other. And then finally, after seeing Christ say things like, Father, forgive them. He probably observed that as he's being nailed to the cross and being beaten in the way he was. He had a forgiving attitude. As he sees him care for his mother, as he sees Jesus' response, still praying to God, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It all, he was converted in those last moments. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise, which is where Jesus descended before he ascended into heaven. The fact is, God is at work here, and his mercy is still being held out. Let me share one other account with you that is just a mind, mind-boggling one. Some of you probably heard me share this before, but... In just after Thanksgiving in 2008, after having lost my older brother, Jim, in late 2006, uh, my brother John suffered a heart attack while at work one day. Just a couple days after Thanksgiving, we just had a, a family gathering, had a great time of sharing with each other, embraced, and, and went on our way. But I received a call that he had, had had this problem at work and had collapsed there, and ultimately he passed away on the spot there, suddenly, without warning. What we didn't know right away came out a few days later. My brother Paul and I are both pastors, both have been walking the faith for many decades, have prayed for this brother of ours who had never accepted Christ. He believed in all kinds of other stuff, nice guy, love him dearly, he's my brother, but he never embraced Christ. So needless to say, we were concerned. We're concerned. He'd heard it. He, even back in the 70s, we were giving him Jesus albums, you know, the Jesus, uh, Jesus stuff. And he, I still remember him getting this album from me. I gave it to him shortly after I was converted. I forget the name of the band, but it's clearly Chris. And he was off into the regular rock music. And he goes, oh, this looks great. He turns it over. The first song on his, he reads, oh, Sweet Jesus Morning. I mean, he was just like, what do I want with a Jesus album? But he'd heard the gospel for 30 plus years, but never accepted it. A couple weeks, a short time after my brother passed away, my uh, other brother went up to his place of employment to get his belongings uh, and pick up his car and the other things that were there in his locker and that sort of thing. 
and ran into a fellow employee of his, and God just set that up serendipitously, who said, are you John's brother? And he said, yes, I'm his brother Paul. And they started talking. It was a strong believer who God specifically positioned at that moment. My brother collapsed on the floor and lived for a couple of minutes before he actually passed away there. This was a strong believer who was holding my brother's head and prayed with him to receive Christ at that moment. My brother was in terror, and this man was the one God put right there and was able to pray with him in that moment, and then he went from terror to total peace and then passed away. Seconds, seconds before he died. God's mercy. John, my brother John, didn't live his life for Christ, but he was saved because God's mercy remained. There's a lot of folks we know who aren't living for Christ. We know the righteous standard that we're being grown up into in Christ. God never gives up. His mercy prevails. So as we say these, nevertheless, the word of God is true, the truth is this, and we recognize a culture that's just disconnected from everything true and going off the deep end, God's heart is breaking for them. He doesn't want to condemn them. He doesn't, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, right? So scripture tells us that. So as we look at this culture that vexes us and makes our stomachs turn, I see things on regular television that make my stomach turn. Not because I'm a prude, just because it's something inside just says this shouldn't be. But they're deceived. They're grasping at straws, looking for hope or help in the wrong places. God's mercy is still extended. A third thing the scriptures tell us, sometimes there's a hard thing that we have to deal with. And I love this. This is <laughs> Elijah and Elisha, Old Testament prophets. Which one do you guys like better, Elijah or Elisha? Those of you who know the story well enough. Some are fans of, we have fans. I kind of, Elijah kind of seems greedy to me. Elijah performed seven miracles, right? And Elisha asked for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah. And guess what? How many miracles did he do? Twice as many. So here's Elisha asking Elijah to bless him. And Elijah's saying, I can't give you that. I can't, that's not in my power to give you. And Elijah says to him, nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And how was Elijah escorted into heaven? We know the account. God sent a chariot. Interestingly enough, I mean, would he have sent a F-16 or a 747 or a 787 for him today? I don't know, but in this situation, and it's biblically accurate, this is what the story accounts for us. God took Elijah to heaven and Elisha was able to see it. So here's a condition that somebody asked for something kind of hard and God in his own sense of humor, said, sure, I'll bring a chariot of fire down here and take Elijah up to heaven. Ironically enough, where do we next see Elijah? In the Bible. Anybody think, remember? Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17. We see Jesus take three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, again, stretching them, growing them, revealing progressively truth and the glory of God to them. And they're just thinking, hey, we're going up here for, you know, get a better view. And before they know it, they're enveloped in the glory cloud that descends on the top of the mountain. They're down on their faces when they hear the voice of God the Father speaking, as all of us would be too. Just think about that. And suddenly appears before them Jesus. He's glowing white, radiant like the sun. And who's there? Moses? And Elijah talking to Jesus. And of course, Peter, as we know, shaken up as he was, let's set up three tents. Let's capture this moment as all the ways we look at that. But there Elijah comes down 
We don't see the chariot. Maybe he took the same chariot back down. I don't know. That's a separate story. Nevertheless, though, is a hinge word by which we don't know God's full will at all in all circumstances, but we know that he works for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that in all things God is working for the good. And I want you to couple those things. I've given you this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, your will be done. I know you know what you're doing. Nevertheless, God, you are working for good. And I want to just pause for a second and let that sink in. Let's think that through. God is working for good about what's going to happen to you this afternoon. Do you know that? He's up to good. He's busy and he's active. He's not distant in heaven someplace. And then all of a sudden you cry out in prayer to him and says, Oh, well, wait, we better, quick, send some angels over there. Get, get something going over there. There's a sea of glass before his throne, right? Perfect peace. He knows what he's doing. He knows when he's going to do it. He knows it's all worked out. Nothing sneaks up on him. The things that surprise or shock us never take him by surprise. So even in the worst of circumstances and the things that strike us by surprise or shock us, God has already factored that in. He continues to work for good. So I want to just give you these couple of handles using the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, God. You know what you're doing, and I, and I trust you. Nevertheless, you're working for good, even though I can't see it, sense it, know it, or understand it, or grasp it yet. As we do that, we are confessing and affirming the word of God. And it gives us peace in the storm. It gives us peace in the trial. It gives us peace even though there's suffering, to know that God is working for good. When we lose sight of that, we can slip into fear. We can slip into discouragement. We can slip into the confusion we started with talking about here today. God is working for good today, right now. And he's planning out everything. In that planning, this is one of the questions I'm often asked, is where does evil, where does frustration, where do the things that don't seem to fit in come into play? I believe there is human will and there's God's will. You figured that out, right? We talk about the strong-willed child and when, what are kids? They're strong-willed adults too, aren't they? They're strong-willed grandparents too. They're strong-willed parents. There's a lot of strong-willed people. Basically, people that are determined to go their own way. There's God's will, which he continually executes unhindered, unhampered by anything that we do. It continues to march along. And by the way, he has an exact date and time set for his return to wrap things up. We're not going to speed it up. We're not going to slow it down. We're not going to hurry him up. You can't get God rushing to do anything. Jesus walked through his life and ministry here knowing the great magnitude of what he was supposed to do and just calmly, persistently press through it. God has this whole thing figured out. We... Instead of walking the straight and narrow, by exercise of our free will, oftentimes zig and zag along the way, right? Making sometimes very little progress because we're taking the long way. How many of you like to take the long way to get somewhere? Anybody? Oh, you got one here, Jack, yeah. The scenic route, you might call it. Um, I'm one who likes to take the quickest route, even though it may seem a little longer. This oftentimes creates fun conversations for Carol and I in the car because I lived here most of my life, and I know all kinds of back ways to get around, even the city of Chicago and such. And so I often get off the main roads where 10 million cars are. Or not quite 10 million. There's probably 8 million cars in the Chicago area. They all seem to be on the same road at the same time sometimes, and I know some back ways of getting there. And to her credit, she's probably right some of the time that it's not the way I go isn't the fastest way. Um, 
But God's trying to lead us in a path. And we're oftentimes trying to take shortcuts. I think I know a better way, God. I think, I, you know, this, this seems okay, but I think I want to go this way. The reality is God's way is always the way we're going to come back to. His Holy Spirit, the good shepherd of our souls, as we're making the zigzags and the will of man is being implemented, God allows for that. Now, the big question is, where does the sovereignty of God intersect with the free will of man? Okay? Here's the way I like to describe it, because it's that same passage in Romans chapter 8, where it says, He continues to work for the good of those that are called according to his purpose, love them and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, those two big words, foreknowledge and predestination, we're not going to cover them deeply here today because we could spend all day talking about that. He foreknew ahead of time what was go- our choices were going to be in the exercise of our free will. So our free will is bound by the parameters of his sovereign will and can never get outside of it completely. We have, in other words, when we have our granddaughter over who has a free will, she has a free will within the boundaries where the gates we put up in our house because she's now learning stairs, right? And she can go downstairs backwards. You know, when a child's 14 months old, going on 15 months old, stairs are kind of a scary thing for the, those who are watching a child, right? So we have got gates that we put up so that she can only go through certain in her own home up in Highland Park. She has them. So she's got a free will within the boundaries of what we have sovereignly, in that <laughs> illustration, allowed her to operate in. When we start to wonder whether the will of man can ever supersede, override, interfere with, or interrupt the will of God we've moved off the solid foundation. God's put us in this playpen of this world. Okay? Yeah, and yes, we've made a jaunt 237 miles up to the moon a couple times. Uh, We may get to other planets. We've got a Mars rover up there, right, that's picking up rocks and doing great things for us, and we may go to some other planets. And and I'm not sure if you ever believe there will be space travel where we'll be on the Starship Enterprise going at the speed of light or not. That would be kind of fun to imagine. I don't think we're going to last that long to figure that out. I think God will come back before that to take us home, but that's just my opinion. The fact is our free will is bound by the sovereign will of God and will never override it or supersede it. Does that make sense? Any questions that raises? I'm going to pause on that, that subject. It's a big subject. God's sovereignty versus the free will of man. Mm-hmm. free will. Right. The question is, Hitler's regime, where he murdered and executed six million innocent Jews just because he wanted to. In God's sovereign will, did he allow that to happen? Well, history tells us, yes, that did occur. And Stalin killed probably 10 million. And, and other dictators have done even more. In China, the numbers aren't counted the same way, uh, but there are probably even greater numbers in Mao's regime that were just executed. God allowed that. And that creates a lot of trouble for us, isn't it? Because then we start asking the question of God and his why. How could you do that? That's one of those questions for when you meet God, I suggest you ask. Okay, I'm not going to try and tackle that outside of the simple statement of God allowed it. He didn't cause it. He has allowed evil to stay on this earth. And Jesus told many parables about this. When there were good seeds sown in a field, 
and someone came in and an enemy sowed weeds in the field. And the question came, well, should we go pull out the weeds? And the answer of the gardener says, no, because that'll destroy the good plants also. In the end, in the harvest, there will be a judgment and the weeds will be pulled out and put in a pile and burned and the good plants will be harvested and brought into the barns. So that's a, a real-life example. has happened in some of our lifetimes here, and there's been others. There may be still yet others that seem to defy this. Why does God allow that to happen? The fact is he's allowed mankind to exercise evil in this world. That is why when I taught a few weeks ago, we're to pray, deliver us from evil. That's a prayer we are called to pray is to be delivered from evil in a minor sense or in a macro sense. That's, I think it's so important. Great question. Something we could expand on another time probably further. Jack? Get a mic. It's got the one up front. Okay. I can speak loudly. It's okay. It, we're recording it, so you. you. Those of us that uh, have been involved in combat in wartime uh, have a great deal of consternation because uh, uh, of what we were doing mm-hmm. and. Uh, that's always troubled me, and mm-hmm. but it, uh, I was a fighter pilot in the Korean War, and every time we were wheeled up on a mission, you'd wonder, uh, uh, am I doing the right thing or mm-hmm. or what? And it uh, it sticks with you, absolutely. And that's a very real. And thank you for sharing that, Jack. And what scripture that brings to mind is in Romans where it says the soldiers or those in authority don't bear the sword in vain. They are God's servants to exercise justice. So in the larger scheme, which you just articulated, God allowed this nation and the allied nations to rise up against that evil. And yes, there was loss of tremendous life in the World War II, in the Korean War, Vietnam. And those things vex our souls. I don't believe God rejoices. He doesn't rejoice over the death of the wicked. He doesn't rejoice over the calamities that are allowed to happen. And those are those big picture questions that only then will we be able to understand more fully how God has allowed so much to happen. But I do believe he does raise up more than just the sword of one soldier or the, sword, the gun of one police officer. I do believe he has, through history, raised up nations to overcome the, the evil advances of things. That's a very good thing you shared. Bob, you had your hand up. No. Okay. Bob was just saying hi. Okay. 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 Sorry for the echoes. I'll speak a little more slowly. Friends, today I want us to walk from this place with another arrow in our quivers or another weapon at our side to help us endure and press through the seasons of life, sometimes that are more difficult. And the simple word, nevertheless, and I encourage you to look up all the scriptures. We don't have time to go into all of them on the handout, the brown handout I gave you. I'm trying to do these different color every week so that I can reference them differently. And there are handouts from the previous weeks here. But if we can begin to incorporate this mindset that no matter how much comes against us or how how hard the rain is falling in our lives at a given point in time, is to look past it, to look heavenward, is to say, nevertheless, 
I know my God to be who he said he is. I know that his plans are settled forever in heaven. I know I stand on the solid foundation of his word. I know that he is continually working for good. We can associate that word nevertheless with many scriptures. And I've given you a number of them here that will be great ones to learn and memorize. And you know plenty of other ones. Because that will help you. And it helps as it helps me every single day that we battle those kinds of things is to come out victorious. And I want to define what that is as we wrap up in prayer. We can perceive sometimes if the storms of life seem to be too overwhelming. And I watched the other day, and it, uh, it was the cutest thing. I, it was one of the very heavily raining days. I forget which day that was. We were going to a retail store out south here. Carol and I were picking something up, so I let her off by the door, and I waited there. Um, and I watched this family coming in. The mother had an umbrella, and the two kids had little umbrellas were about this high. One was a zebra they all, and had ears and a little face on it. I thought, that's the cutest thing. But the wind was too strong and blew that kid's umbrella away, and it blew across the parking lot. And the mother then ran after and put her under her umbrella. And it just makes me think, even when all of our defenses are down, even when we think we're feeling helpless victims, our Father God's coming alongside with his umbrella and picking us up again, holding us to his side. So I encourage you to lean into him and know that in his sovereignty, he has promised that he'll always be there. He will never leave you, never forsake you, Never just shove you off and just say, go figure it out. He said, I will always be there present with you, even as he is in this moment. I want to pause with a word of prayer to, by our prayer and expressing faith, we're affirming his presence with us. And if some of you are in one of those really bad storms, as it may be in a group this size, I want you to let him pick you up. Let him take you under his umbrella to shield you. Let him give you his strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we know that you're working for our good even when we can't see you. But God, today in a special way, I ask you that, and we ask together, that you might give us eyes to see clearly what it is you're doing, that we might have our trust strengthened, that you are sheltering us, you are shielding us, you are protecting us, you are guiding us. Lord, if there are some here today that are in one of those low places of discouragement or despair, we pray that your Holy Spirit will lift them, that they'll also reach out for that help, that that fuel tank of their joy might be renewed, refreshed, and refilled. God, I pray for all of us that you will equip us and clothe us with the powers of the age to come. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let the joy, the love, and the peace, the fruit of that spirit, be prevalent in us. God, I just pray where there's confusion, that you will bring the peace that passes understanding. Where there is fear, may the light of your presence and the pure love that you have for us cast out that fear. Where there is pain, we ask you to bring your healing touch because you're the one that binds up the wounds of the broken, even broken in heart. Let your healing anointing be applied to hearts and lives around this room today. And together, Lord, help us to look heavenward, to rejoice that our help comes from heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.